KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. There are a lot of alarming headlines these days about school boards, state legislatures working to ban certain books in school libraries if they haven't banned them already, with most of the attention being paid to books that focus on race or sexual identity. Now, book banning is nothing new in the U.S., but we wanted to talk about why having diverse texts available to children is critical. Also, why book bans really don't work and in many cases lead to more exposure for the books people want to keep away. Our guest is Dr. Maya Daughtery, Literacy Director at NWEA, a nonprofit that supports students and educators. Give a listen. We are in a moment where we are seeing a lot of uh, concern about certain books because of what people say are in them and they don't want their kids exposed to them. But really tackling tough issues and in a school library is really one of the best places to do it where kids can start to understand the world around them. No, there is no better way, especially um, for a student to get exposure to the world that's bigger than their immediate community, their family, their neighborhood, than text. So removing text from students really closes their world and what I would say in in very unhealthy ways for the student and for our, our bigger society. And we'll dig into that, but not for nothing. It seems to me the best way to have a 12-year-old read something is to make a big deal that they shouldn't read it. Absolutely. Like, yes, they, they might not get it at the school library, but you have completely piqued their interest as to, well, why does anybody want me to read this? Absolutely. I was totally that kid that if you told me I couldn't read it, that's exactly what I'm going to get because now I want to know why. <laughs> Give me your thought on why this is important, the windows to the world that reading about people that aren't like you or cultures that that aren't your culture, religions that aren't your religion, whatever it may be, why it's so important? Well, a very, I would say, philosophical answer for me is that it's it builds empathy, right? If you are someone who can put yourself into someone else's perspective, and it doesn't mean you have to agree with them. There are lots of people I don't agree with, but if I can challenge myself to maybe see the problem, the context, the situation through their eyes, it creates a better avenue to a conversation. But there's actually a much more practical reason. And I can draw upon some personal experience. So I grew up in Detroit in the 80s and 90s. When I grew up in Detroit, I think the city was about 98% Black, right? My doctors were Black, the judges were Black, the police officers, the saints and sinners were all Black. When I graduated high school, I went to the University of Michigan, and I think at the time, Michigan's Black enrollment, I know it was the highest it had ever been. I think it was 9%. So the vast majority of people that I interacted with in my undergraduate experience were not Black. But that was cool. I mean, I didn't have an an issue there. When I left Michigan, I went back to Detroit, taught for a couple years, and then I moved across the country to Vegas. That was, I'm going to say, even more than college, my very first culture shock. So I grew up in Detroit in a Black family. I taught Black students, even though my undergraduate experience was certainly more diverse and multicultural. It was easy for me to kind of like, you know, find other Black students. I still, and go home on the weekends. Detroit's just like 40 minutes away. But when I moved to Vegas, clear across the country, I, for the first time, met 
Mormons and people who practice or members of Latter-day Saints. It's a very, very, very different culture than urban Black Detroit. I mean, very different in lots of ways. And so when I moved there for the very first time, I'm going to say I had my very first culture shock where I really was living, working, making friends with people who were part of a culture that was so different from mine. I left Vegas, moved to Nashville, left Nashville. I moved to D.C. And now that I'm in D.C., I was just saying to my mom the other day, I have met more people literally from around the world here than I have from anywhere else. I have friends from Ethiopia. I have friends from Ghana. I have friends from Senegal. I have friends from India. So because D.C. is diverse, my social circle is diverse. And so the practical reason why we want students exposed to texts, to ideas, to people who live lives differently than theirs, who think differently than they do, who are exposed to similar challenges or problems, but go about solving them differently is because at some point it is very likely they are going to be part of a community where they're living with people who are different from them. And for students, text is their first time for many students to see a life that is different from their own. Specifically, you know, when you talk elementary, junior high, it's a time when kids are still in that phase of just absorbing everything. You know, opinions aren't developed, you know, you're mm-hmm. not rigid, everything. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's the best time to learn that this person lives a different way and it's completely fine. And it, to your point about empathy, you really, it's the most important time to kind of understand that everything is different. Everybody's experience is different. Absolutely. And I want to just double down on empathy and not sympathy, because the point is not to make students or children sympathetic or feel bad for someone else. The idea is to say, this is your life. This is how you navigate the world. Well, this is my life. and This is how I navigate the world. How can we navigate the world together? What can I learn from you, about you, about your culture, about your history, so that we can both occupy this space together? For the student or, or child to have experiences and exposure to people who are really different from them, racially, ethnically, gender, sexual orientation, LGBTQIA people. These are all people that fill our society. And that is part of the thing that makes our society great, especially in America. We really do have a lot of genuine diversity. And I think that's one of our greatest strengths. So the sooner students get to see, have experiences with people who are living a life different from their own, I honestly think it makes our society just a lot stronger. But I'll also say not only does it help to see people who are different from you, it also is deeply self-affirming to see people in texts who are like you. And I can't, I, I can't overemphasize that. So when, when I was growing, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, There weren't nearly as many published Black young adult authors then as there were now. And my mother was a reading teacher. I grew up in a house full of readers. And so like I was reading, I mean, it was in the 80s and 90s. I was reading the Babysitter's Club. And I remember when Jessie showed up because literally she was the first Black babysitter and every book with Jessie on the cover, I just could not wait to get. And But besides that, I was reading Sweet Valley High, Sweet Valley Twins, Jessica and Elizabeth Wakefield. The vast majority of the young adult literature featured 
non-Black characters and literature that did have Black characters. I remember my mom and I got into the biggest fight because she kept bringing me books and I had a meltdown and said, I don't want to read any more books with slaves. These books are sad. And she was, you know, she was frustrated. But when I was a kid, there really weren't books that gave the full range of expression for Black children. And so the default for text for me was for a long time, middle-class white children until I got, you know, older and got exposed in high school to a a much wider range of authors like James Baldwin, Toni Morrison. But as a, as a little girl, it was really hard to find characters that look like me. It's different now. So even though the publishing industry is still lags behind when it comes to authors of color, like they're still overwhelmingly, the author force is dominated by white authors, we, there are more Black authors, Latinx authors, Indian authors presenting characters that are doing a range of things like science fiction and fantasy and creating whole new worlds that really just didn't exist. And so another reason why I'm a big believer in giving the kid the text, whatever the text is, is because not only does it help them see a world outside of theirs, it helps them see their own world better, differently, and with more nuance. And that's also important. We are in a moment where we're seeing a lot of, be it school boards, be it state legislatures, crack down on certain types of books. They don't want kids to feel uncomfortable. They Let's face it, they don't want white kids to feel uncomfortable is where it it stems from. But this is nothing new in American society, we have these cycles. And at the time, it may feel crazy. But if there's one thing as an amateur history buff, I've learned it's that very little is new. The names and the places and the flashpoints may change, but the basic concept is almost always the same. Oh, 100%. So I was looking at the history of book banning. <laughs> book banning goes back literally into the founding of America. The very first banned book happened in 1624, <laughs> which was a long, long time ago. And the, the title was John Eliot's The Christian Commonwealth, written in the late 1640s, and William Pynchon's The Meteorist Prize of Our Redemption, 1650s are early banned books. So book banning goes back centuries. This is nothing new. And so on one hand, it's very alarming. It's very distressing. Like every time I turn the news on, I'm like, oh, wow, what are they doing? (laughs) What book are they snatching out the hands of children today? On the other hand, I remind myself attempts to ban books is as much a part of the cultural history as everything else. And so this will just be another cycle. And eventually this cycle, it will end. Another one will resume. But I think if teachers and educators and parents and librarians can kind of just breathe through the cycle and recognize this is just a part of how America functions, it will, it will tamp down. It will tamp down and we can get back to business as usual. And one of the things why these aren't effective is, yes, this grabs headlines and stuff like that. And I said it kind of tongue in cheek when we started, but it's true. A lot of these books, these kids probably weren't, you know, familiar with them, hadn't hadn't heard of. And now all of a sudden, you know, well, if all these people don't want me to read it, yeah, I can't get it in a library. But there's this thing called Amazon and it eventually boomerangs to where you cast much more 
spotlight on the topic that you're trying to keep the kids from reading. Wasn't there a term? It's called the Streisand effect where the there was some <laughs> some situation with Barbara Streisand, I think, filed a lawsuit and no one cared about it until the lawsuit. And then she ended up all there was all this attention. But anyway, like it's the same thing here where by pointing this out, you are just giving kids a roadmap to and they will work a lot harder to find something they probably wouldn't weren't even aware of in the first place. Kids and parents. And so that's the part that delights and tickles me, because to your point, since this latest round of very local challenge books and banned books has come up this past couple of months, people now are curious as to why shouldn't we read this? Which is great, right? I'd rather someone read a book and challenge the ideas in the book. That's a worthwhile exercise. Ask questions, right? That's what should happen when you read a book. The bigger issue I have is when I hear news excerpts and parents or activists who are pro-banning books haven't even read the book. (laughs) That that was my next point. But you haven't read it. How do you... How do you know? And so when I when I was in a school district, I was in a major school district. I'm not sure what the policy is now. So things may have changed since I left. I worked in the district office. We would get banned book challenges all the time. And one of the best things about our leadership is that um, she held parents accountable. And there was this form one had to fill out. It was very specific, like cite the page number, cite the line, cite the language. So in order for parents to challenge a book in my last district, they had to read the book. And that actually slowed, that slowed down everybody. And it it stopped a lot. But I just also want to say that life is not comfortable. Life is not comfortable. Life is pleasant, but it's not comfortable. I mean, take a look around, pick a country, there's a conflict going on, right? Pick a neighborhood, there's a conflict going on. Life is full of challenges and ups and downs and problems and solutions. Narrative text is literally how children learn how to navigate conflict, complexity, and how to understand what conflict could look like and ways they can navigate through it. So books, to some degree, should be uncomfortable. If you're only reading things that make you feel good, I would challenge you to stop. Pick up a book that challenges your belief. This is what you know. My mom said to me, "You know, your your beliefs have to be unwavering." We had this. We've had this conversation many times. Like everything else is negotiable, but not your beliefs. I said, "Okay, I can roll with that." But if my beliefs are unwavering, if they're stable, then that means they can withstand a challenge. So the things I believe, I believe, right? Like I believe deeply in treating people with empathy, compassion, care, and kindness. That is a belief. And I do not waver from that. There's not a book I can read that's going to knock me off that square. So if your beliefs are unshakable and infallible, I really wonder what you worry about. What in a book can challenge what you believe? And if it can, I would just challenge you to ask for yourself, do I really believe this? And are my beliefs really unfallible and unshakable? If something in 200 pages can knock me off my square. I, I have no, I have not done a study. I have no empirical evidence, but I'm going to say 85 to 90% of the people that shriek the loudest about certain books have not read them and are strictly using it to prove a political point or to continue themselves down a, a political road that they want to go. It's amazing to me every time you see somebody that's really aggressive about pushing a book is actually pushed back on 
to your mm-hmm. point of the form, you know, what is it that you don't like about it? Well, what specifically? How is it framed that? Well, I haven't actually they read it, know. but like it real it most they of the know. time, this is just another way of scoring political points in what has become America's ever continuing culture war. It is. I mean, but that's really unfortunate, right? Because I'm not even sure we're warring over it, to be honest. I mean, I have some idea, like the dominant culture wants to remain the dominant culture and the culture is shifting and changing. The culture has been shifting and changing since the pilgrims landed here, right? So America has never been like a stable, fixed culture. There have been people who have immigrated in waves and in droves literally since the first colonists came to the shores. So it's interesting for me, like at my big old age, to kind of sit back and look and say, wow, a lot of this seems to be motivated by fear. And I'm not exactly sure what you're afraid of, but telling students and teachers not to read is that's not going to get you where you want to be. That's not going to get you there. I would just encourage my fellow citizens, my neighbors, the people I grocery shop with, the people I, you know, I'm in stores with, like these, these, you're still my neighbor. I would really challenge them to say, what is it that's in these texts that is so offensive to you that actually is going to shake you from your core beliefs? And I think that that's a good conversation worth having if you want to have that conversation. To the point of, you know, people that say they want to protect their child or anything to that point, kids are going to run into difficult situations in life. They're going to meet different people. And the more you stop them from learning about these things, the fewer tools they're going to have in their toolbox to deal with the real world. So as, mm-hmm. as I look at it, you're actually doing the children Harm. a disservice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I hear the argument. To, I mean, this, to me, it sounds just like a big old dog whistle. I hear the argument. Uh, we don't want to. What's the word you said earlier? Hurt, harm, or upset. I think you said upset, upset children. And I just wonder, have you asked them? I mean, because I taught English for in, in, with real children in a real classroom, middle school and high school for almost 10 years. I can tell you what never upset them was the book. Here are things that did upset them. My boyfriend broke up with me. My girlfriend broke up with me. I missed school. Now I have a D in math. My mother came up here and embarrassed me, right? Those are things (laughs) that actually upset kids. Oh, I have a project due and I forgot about it. Now Miss Daugherty is going to be upset at me, right? Those are things that get kids upset. In all of my years teaching English, and I taught Black children, white children, Asian Pacific Islander children, Latino children, and I had a pretty diverse set of books and authors. Never not once did a kid come to me distressed and upset because I had them read um, a complex text. That just didn't happen. <laughs> that just did not happen. So I really wonder if people said we don't want to upset children or distress children. I really want to know what, what they're talking about. Like, what does distress look like for you? What, what does that mean? So that's another place where I just hear it and I'm like, hmm, okay. And to, to close our conversation what is the message you want people to take away from this? I mean, you've made it quite clear through the, you know, if you had to put it on top here of how important it is for diversity of text in school classrooms and libraries, what would it be? Actually, what I would encourage people to do, it was two things. Go to the ALA Frequently Challenged book list, pick one and read it. Anyone, pick a children's book, a young adult book and read it. I would also encourage you to Find someone 
whose lived experience reflects the text that you read and have an open, have a conversation, not to prove that you're right and have a conversation with that person. See, it's easy to ban books. That's easy. It's a lot harder to ban people. It's a lot harder to ban people. I can be a Twitter warrior and post all day. And if I never have to interact with you, if I never have to sit down with you, if I never have to have lunch with you, if we never have to have a conversation, we may go to the same church, but I never have to talk about what you go home to, right? So I can be an online warrior, soldier all day. It's a lot harder to do that when you're sitting across from somebody who is an immigrant, right? You're sitting across from somebody who is trans and transitioning or has transitioned. It's harder to ban people. So I would encourage folks, if they're you're so intent on banning a book, start by talking to people and learn about their lived experience and give them an opportunity to learn about yours. And then read the book. Very simple. Amazon will bring it to your house in 48 hours. But also shop indie bookstores. That's the other thing. So that's the last thing. Shop indie bookstores. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.